0: And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he touched his ear and healed him. When Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness." And they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, "'This man also was with him.' But he denied it, saying, "'Woman, I do not know him.' And a little later, someone else saw him and said, "'You also are one of them.' But Peter said, "'Man, I am not.'" after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, "'Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean.' But Peter said, "'Man, I do not know what you are talking about.' And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, "'Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times.' and he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. This is the word of the Lord. Satan had demanded to sift, or to test, or, as the word that is used in this passage, to tempt the disciples. A direct attack on Jesus through temptation at the beginning of his ministry had been ineffective. And so... For a few years, Satan had poked and prodded, scouted, and researched. You see, Satan is not stupid. And Satan is not lazy. He's strategic. And he's patient. For example, Peter was bold in his faith during Jesus' ministry, Right? Peter is the one who first confessed Jesus to be the Messiah. What great faith Peter displayed. But it was not enough merely for Satan to test Peter somehow. No, Satan must destroy that good thing. Satan must strategically take the thing that was Peter's strength and try to turn it into his weakness. And so what's the point at which Satan tests Peter? But to get him to deny Jesus three times. And Satan knew already, he knew where the weak point was because he had already done the prodding. We saw it all the way back when Jesus confessed When Peter confessed Jesus to be Messiah, didn't we? Right after he made that great confession, when Jesus says, I will have to suffer and die, Peter says, oh, no way. Far be it, Jesus. And what's Jesus say? But get behind me, Satan. Satan already knew. He had already explored the possibility and he had just waited for the right moment to exploit it. The critical point when it would do the most damage to Peter, to the disciples, to Jesus, or so Satan thought. Church, Satan opposes you. Satan wants to test you. Satan wants to tempt you. Satan wants to destroy you. I want you to understand that. He wants to find the point at which something good, God-given, is happening. And at the right moment, he wants to exploit it, and he wants to destroy it, and he wants to kill you. I cannot say that emphatically enough. He wants to test your faith. He wants to test if you will live by faith in Christ. He wants to test if we will truly believe, truly apply God's word to every aspect of our life. He is looking for the little places. He's poking and he's prodding your life right now, looking for the little places where you will say to Jesus, oh, may it never be. And then once he finds that point, he waits for the opportune time to exploit it. He sets up the most inconvenient circumstances and then turns that key. Take, for example, marriage. Just, just as an example, as, one, as an example that all of us who are married can probably resonate with, right? We say, you know, the first few years of marriage are hard. Because, you know, people are learning to live together for the first time and et cetera, et cetera. And there's some truth to that, perhaps. But why, why suddenly, have you considered, why suddenly are there temptations in new ways, in new intensities like never before when you get married? Why are there things that didn't bother you very much when someone else did them, but now your spouse does it and it grates you so badly? It drives you up the wall, right? Why? You knew, you knew that you had selfish places in your life. You knew that. But why, when you are, get married, all of a sudden, there's a fresh intensity to your selfishness? A fresh intensity to your arrogance, right? Oh, Satan... Satan could have intensely tempted you to be selfish at any point, but he waited until that temptation would take down not only you, but your spouse. He waited until that temptation would not only take down you and your spouse, but would destroy marriage in the eyes of others, so as to unglorify God by unglorifying His good creation. by causing people to think this thing that God has given us for our benefit, for our good in the world, for human flourishing, is actually somehow bad. You see, Satan's not stupid. He's strategic. He doesn't need to attack you right away. No, he's too smart for that. He waits until the right moment. And then he floods you with tests. He floods you with opposition. We can't possibly cover this morning every single example of every place that Satan might do this, right? We could probably sit here, and, and if we had time to think about it, we'd all come up with a dozen examples of places where Satan has done this in our lives, and I, and, and I think it would be a good, uh, a good thing for you to do to take some time this week to just consider your own life and where Satan has done that, to, to sit down in prayer and say, Lord, let me reflect on the places where Satan has attacked me and is attacking me, We don't have time to cover every single form of opposition, every single tactic, but we do have time, I think, and I think this passage reveals some key categories, some key categories where we face opposition, and some key tactics of Satan, and also some key areas where Christ supplies what we need. And so we have in this passage three scenes, first on the Mount of Olives with the disciples praying, then on the mount with an angry mob joining them, and then in a courtyard, the courtyard of the high priest's house with Jesus and Peter there. And each, I think, reveals a kind of opposition. Each highlights a different tactic of our true enemy, Satan, and his forces, and I want perhaps to add here at this point that you need to understand that the true opponent is Satan. But he will use very real people and very real things in your life to oppose you. But those things are not necessarily the enemy, if you will. We need to distinguish between those. And then I think each scene will give us a way that, paradoxically, Christ actually supplies what we need. So, let me first start by sharing with you three forms of opposition, three ways in which Satan comes against us, fights against God's kingdom. They are our weaknesses, physical force, and social pressures. In the first scene, they go up on the Mount of Olives to pray. And Jesus tells them, hey, pray here. I'm going to go over there. Stones throw away, I'm going to pray. You guys pray here. I just told you. Remember, he just told them, Satan is going to sift you. And then he says, pray that you will not fall into temptation. You'd think if Jesus had just said, hey, heads up. Satan's about ready to really come after you. That that would be kind of a, a point in which you'd go, okay, maybe I need to you know pay attention to that a little bit. But but instead they fall asleep, and we may actually be too quick to criticize them for this. You know, we might say to ourselves, "Goodness gracious, how do, how can you fall asleep in a situation like this, disciples? How how could they possibly like what are they thinking?" And yet how often do you and I get up early in the morning say to pray or to read our bibles and we're sitting there and pretty soon you know we wake up because we'd fallen asleep in the chair like oh man I need to get, get some breakfast and get to work I I just passed out for a second how often do we doze off how often are our weaknesses do our weaknesses oppose us in the things that God would have us do you see, the weakness here is in the disciples themselves physically, but it's also mental and spiritual as well. It's not merely physical weakness. Our, uh, what we, we need to understand here is that our legitimate physical weaknesses are not legitimate excuses for sin. The disciples were truly tired. It was, the, it was late at night. They were physically exhausted, and yet our physical, our legitimate physical weaknesses are not ex- legitimate excuses for sin. Our legitimate relational weaknesses are not legitimate excuses for sin. However, our weaknesses do cause us to be more susceptible to temptations, and we need to be aware of that. We ought to. Pay attention to that. And for that reason, we ought to be aware that these will tend to be points at which Satan will seek to attack us. How often, how often when you're hungry, are you more likely to respond to someone in anger? I mean, let's just be honest for a second. Maybe if you're like me, you're hungry. And, and for some reason, that thing that doesn't bother you typically you, you know, sets you off. I mean, such a simple thing as hunger, it's a legitimate physical need that we have, and yet it is not a legitimate excuse for sin. Or how about when you are, let's just say, sexually charged? Let's go there. It's a physical, biological element to our life, right? And yet, even still, it is not a legitimate excuse for sin. There's no excuse, well, my spouse didn't, my spouse hasn't, my spouse won't. It's not an excuse for searching for that somewhere else or in some other way. Our own weaknesses, we need to understand physically, relationally, otherwise, There are points at which Satan will seek to oppose us and oppose what God is doing in our lives. He wants to exploit them. There's also physical force. In the second scene, Jesus and the disciples face an angry mob, right? Now, our opposition isn't always someone threatening to do us physical harm. That Could be, you know, if we obey Christ, there could be at some point in our life someone who seeks to do us physical harm because we are obeying Christ. However, there are other forms of what we might call material force. Your employer may leverage your salary or leverage even threatening to fire you, to tempt you, to test you into doing something that God, you know, God would not have you to do. That can and does happen and is happening all the more in our culture today. A husband may threaten or use their physical strength against their wife, or a wife may threaten to withhold physical intimacy to force a husband to do something. That is physical force, material force. Even someone without much physical strength can use this kind of force. Consider the four-year-old temper tantrum for a second, right? I know, you went to the coffee shop, you just wanted a cup of coffee, just to sit down, read your Bible for twenty minutes. You know, you know, Third Space has that little area where the kids can play, right? And you think, oh, this is perfect. I can get my coffee, you know, whatever half-calf soy, blah blah blah, that you get for eight dollars. And then, and then you could sit down, and you get your Bible, and you get your phone out, and you take your Instagram picture, you know, hashtag Coffee and Jesus, you know, hashtag Third Space or whatever, and. And then you're just, you're just taking that sip, and you're turning the page to where you want to read because you want to glorify God through reading the Word. And all of a sudden, your kid throws over all of the kitchen stuff in there. All of a sudden, your, your kid screams because their sibling is not doing what they want, what you want. And heaven forbid, you told them when you came in, if you act up, we're leaving. We don't get to stay. And now you're stuck in the tension, right? Right? Of, I told them this, this is the punishment, and yet, I, I, hash, hashtag Bible time, come on. What am I to do? These forces can test whether or not we'll act faithfully or whether we'll be attempted to sin, right? Whether or not we'll do What is long-term best for our kids, for their discipleship, for their understanding what right and wrong is, for their understanding what the boundaries are, for their understanding that when mom and dad say they're going to do something, they actually follow through and do it. For giving them stability and boundaries, foundation to grow up in, or to make yourself a liar and do what you want in the moment and not give that to them. We have a choice. We have a choice. The third thing is social pressures. Right in the third scene in the courtyard, there's Peter keeping some distance from Jesus but but confronted with the realities of him nonetheless. And, And he's asked multiple times whether he uh, is or is not connected to Jesus. And I, and I never really gra- grasped this until I read it, this passage, this time, but it, but it seems as though while Peter is right here in the courtyard being asked these questions, Jesus is literally right there being beaten and mocked. He is not somewhere else. He's not off in some other area, Peter is being asked these questions while he is watching Jesus be mocked and beaten for not being able to prophesy while Peter is proving true his prophecy. Do we grasp the irony of this situation? And why does Peter deny him? Just, why, why does the man who just moments ago, uh, an hour, two hours ago, was willing to pull out a sword and, and attempt to chop a guy's head off, thankfully he, his aim is poor, right? He's willing to be arrested with Jesus at that point for murder, and now he's concerned about someone knowing that he might be one of his disciples, I wonder sometimes, what would have happened if Jesus would have, or if Peter would have turned and said, yeah, that's right, I am one of his disciples. Would she have turned him in? I mean, really, what would they have done? What, they, they have what they want. They have Jesus. Who would have cared? But, but what if she actually knew Jesus? What if she was actually considering Jesus' teaching? What if, what if she was wondering about him, and that wasn't actually opposition, but an opportunity? What if he had said, yeah, and she'd said, could you tell me more about him? But he didn't. He didn't. And the rooster crows, and just as Jesus had said, Peter looks at Christ, beaten and mocked, and Jesus looks at him. And he realizes that the social pressures of these people sitting next to a fire in the courtyard was, had overrun the opinion of Jesus himself in his life. Listen, there are social pressures that we face as well. What will someone think of me if I do this? What will someone say if I do that? How will I be perceived? How could I, might I be misunderstood? Sometimes, sometimes it isn't even what will happen, it's what we think might possibly happen or what we think someone might possibly think about us and they be, that begins to dominate our actions, dominate our thoughts when in reality that person may never have thought about us at all. How often do we say, oh, well, I know you must have been thinking blah, 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 and the person goes, I don't even know what you're talking about. I never thought about that at all. You see someone looking in your direction from a distance and laughing, and you assume they're making fun of you with someone else, although they really, you know, you'd really have no idea what they're talking about. And then that causes you to respond in a different way to them than you would have otherwise. And then they're sitting there wondering, well, why are they treating me that way? I've never done anything wrong to them. It's the kind of sin that breaks up churches. It's the kind of sin that breaks up marriages and friendships. Satan waits for the opportune time. Social pressures. Social pressures that sometimes aren't even actual pressure, pressures from anyone else, but just something that we create in our own hearts. Right? So these are all forms of opposition that Satan exploits our own weaknesses, the forces others force, uh, social pressures. But how do we respond? How can we combat this opposition from Satan? You know, there's an old saying in football, in sport. That the best, what is it, the best defense is a good offense? Right? How do we fight back against Satan when he fights against us? I think paradoxically, we have to look at the response of Christ versus the disciples and realize that. The only way for us to have the strength to fight these things is to not look to our own strength, but to look to Christ instead. And so I want to give you, I want to go back through each of these scenes one more time, and I want to hopefully help us to uh, think through what method we should use to fight back against Satan. The first thing is this, we need to find strength by submitting to the Lord, You need to understand that you do not find strength in yourself to win this fight. You only find strength to win this fight by submitting to the Lord instead. That's where it comes from. There is a sharp contrast between Jesus and the disciples. Jesus reveals his inner strength by being diligent in prayer as he knows what's ahead of him. He continues in prayer, sweating drops of blood, staying diligent to pray for his disciples while they're over there asleep. Even more, Jesus reveals that true strength is not found in being self-sufficient. Friends, you think that, you know, uh, our world wants to tell us, you know, be self-sufficient. That's how you can be strong. But what the Bible tells us is something very, very different. Jesus himself, what does he do? He says, Lord, not my will, but your will. And then God strengthens him. Even Jesus submits, and even Jesus gets strength from somewhere outside of himself. Meanwhile, the disciples don't submit to Jesus' command, but submit to their eyelids. And that's the paradox. The greatest strength comes from submitting to Jesus' Just as Jesus submitted to God, you see, strength is not, first of all, physical. That's what we need to understand. There's nothing wrong with physical strength. God uses it in many times, in many ways. In fact, Jesus' strength uh, expressed itself physically in enduring what he is about to suffer, right? That takes physical strength. Yet strength goes far deeper than how much a person can binge press or how fast they can run a mile. This greater, truer strength comes from God, from the one who is all-powerful. Jesus' true strength, it's spiritual, and it's used for spiritual battle. Strength only matters when it meets opposition at the right point. Let me say that again, because I don't think we think about this. Strength only matters when we meet opposition at the right point. It doesn't matter how much I can bench press if I'm standing at the starting line of a marathon, right? In fact, that may actually hurt my time, okay? It doesn't matter how well you can box when it's a wrestling match. Strength only matters when it meets opposition The right point. You can be strong in any number of ways, not just physically. You can be talented and you can be skilled. You can be eloquent and and you can be diligent. But if those things are not submitted to the Lord, then you will not exercise that strength in the right place. You'll be strong, but if it's not submitted to the Lord, you're being strong for Satan, not for Jesus. Strength then actually becomes, your strength actually becomes your greatest weakness. Your strength becomes your greatest weakness. And even worse, you go on thinking, how strong am I? How strong am I? And so the test is this, Satan wants to pacify the strength that God has given you. He wants to pacify your strength through apathy, through laziness, through indifference. He is trying to get us to not care enough to fight the spiritual war for our lives and for our families and for our marriages and for our community. One of his favorite ways to do this is to let us be really good at something that doesn't matter at all. To exhibit our strength into something that's irrelevant. Silly example, but it's the one that came to my mind. You remember? You remember? In the if you for those of you who are old enough, you remember in the early two thousands, like Guitar Hero was like a massively popular thing. Like every, you could go to any garage sale and find like three Guitar Hero guitars now, but you know, like for like twenty five cents or something. But it was a huge deal, and I and I just I think about. I think about the people who played hours and hours of Guitar Hero and became really, really good. And I wonder now if they had wished that they had practiced a real guitar. Like, no one cares that you are awesome at Guitar Hero. Like, that's great. No no one cares now. But maybe if you had put that into something else, maybe it would be something that actually would be beneficial. And so... What's our application? Well, here's here's an application. Be in prayer. Be in prayer. First, because it's God's way to direct us to, 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 to the places we need strength, right? But 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 also it's God's way of, of, of turning of making us realize that it's not in our strength, but his strength that we do things. There is nothing that reminds you that you need Christ more than wait, stop. Let me pray to God instead. I can't solve this. I need to pray. And there's nothing that actually creates in us greater strength of faith than prayer. Second thing, so not only... Not only do we need to find strength by submitting to our Lord, but we need to base our actions in the sovereignty of our Lord. Jesus finds and submits his strength to God's will, but it's and it's on that foundation that, he, that, that, that his actions in the next scene are built as the crowd, as this angry mob comes to arrest him. It's submission to the Lord and an understanding of God's sovereignty that allows him to Act rightly. See, in verse 53, we see that Jesus recognizes that everything is happening because God is allowing it. He says, "Uh, yeah, you could have done this any day in the temple, but you didn't lay hands on me. But the reason is because this is your hour in the power of darkness. In other words, God's letting this happen. You get this moment, this hour, just, just an hour, only because God says so. He submits to God because he knows God is in control. This couldn't be a greater contrast from everyone else in the scene, right? Every other person is basing their actions on a desire to control the situation in some way, rather than basing them on trusting God being in control. Judas sought control, what? Through passive aggressiveness. Would you betray me with a kiss? Peter sought control through just... Plain aggressiveness, right? Slicing at a man's head, The chief priests sought control through their deceptiveness, conspiring and seeking to get Jesus in cover of darkness because they couldn't control the crowds if they had arrested him in the temple. But all of these are really just examples of a lack of control. This is what I want you to understand. All of these people are not actually in control. They're out of control and they know they can't be in control and that's why they're behaving in the way that they are. Strength is not submitting to God's sovereignty. uh, Strength that is not submitted to God's sovereignty Is a mirage. It's make believe. It is eventually crushed under the mismanagement of its own strength. It's like living a lie. You can do it for a while, but eventually you get trapped in your own web. Listen, you, the strongest man can, can push that rock up the mountain, but eventually your foot slips and the rock is going to crush you. And it doesn't matter if you can push the rock up, when the rock rolls back down, it will kill you. We are not in the kind of control that we like to pretend we're in. the more we grasp to control things, the more we grasp to control what seems out of control around us, in fact, the more out of control we become. Because we can't. We can't control it. You can't control the people. You can't control your spouse. You can't control your kids in that way. You can't control other people. You can't control that stuff. But we can submit to Jesus. Jesus. And not merely because we're commanded to submit to him, but we can submit to Jesus because he is actually in control. He is actually sovereign. Listen, if Jesus is not sovereign, then submitting to him is foolishness. It's silly to do, but if he is in control then it's absolutely the wisest thing to do. And that's exactly why in this scene, we see everyone else freaking out. And Jesus, the one who's going to be arrested, who's going to be crucified, is as cool as a cucumber. You see, Satan, he wants to warp your strength. Not only does he want to pacify your strength, but he wants to warp it through foolishness. He wants to harness it to do evil rather than good. And if he can make you think you're doing good, that's all the better. At the moment of the arrest, the disciples rightly recognize what's going to happen, but they draw all the wrong conclusions about what to do about it because they fail to believe Jesus' repeated words that he must be arrested, he must suffer, he must die. And because they fail to believe Jesus' words, their zeal for Jesus actually becomes zeal against Jesus and themselves. Peter was so zealously for Jesus that he would be, he would risk murdering someone and being arrested for murder and being crucified alongside Christ rightly for him because he would be a murderer without realizing what Jesus is actually zealous for. And what is Jesus zealous for? God's will. God's will to be done. Whatever the cost to him, God's will to be done. many Christians in churches are super zealous for God's mission, and they truly want to see people saved, so much so that they'll they turn a blind eye to things that are explicitly commanded in Scripture. But what are we zealous for? Are we zealous for God's will and for Him to be glorified? And do we really think that we have a better plan than God's plan? See, Jesus understood, as I said, that this hour, that this power, the power, the word for power here is the word for the authority that Satan offered Jesus all the way back in Luke 4 during the temptation. Same exact word. And Jesus knows that it's temporary. Jesus knows that his power is short-lived. He didn't need that power back then in Luke 4, and he doesn't need it right now. Jesus is taking that power a different way by God's sovereign plan. And indeed all power will be His. And even for us today it may seem like things are going all wrong but it's always only a temporary thing. And so our application is this trust God. Trust God and hand over control. Give God your ear rather than taking someone else's ear. When we think about that, you know, in big situations. We think, oh, of course I'll give God control in that, that, in that big thing. I, of course I'll give God control. But if we are not practicing handing control over to God in all the little things, then why do we think when the big things happen that we'll give control to God there as well? It doesn't make sense, does it? And we know, in fact, if we look at our lives that we don't. We don't do that. So, first, we find strength by submitting to the Lord. Second, we base our actions in the sovereignty of the Lord. Third, we gain courage from the fear of the Lord. And in this final scene in the courtyard, we see Jesus blindfolded, mocked, abused, and Peter amongst the crowd of observers warming himself by a fire. Denying Jesus. And Peter's questioning is contrasted with Jesus' questioning. Peter's life is not at risk, and yet he denies Christ. You know, when we think about denying Jesus, we might think of someone saying, hey, renounce Jesus or die. That could happen. But this isn't so extreme. The denial here is not necessarily a total denial of faith. It's it's a denial of being connected to Jesus in any way. And I want you to stop and think about your own life. When you refuse, when you refuse to Speak God's word when you know you ought to to someone who might not agree with it. Are you denying your connection to Jesus just like Peter did? When you conform to the world because of social pressures rather than standing on what God's word says, do you not deny Jesus just like Peter did? The soldiers, by contrast, they won't even grant that Jesus is a prophet, let alone the Messiah. They've completely rejected Jesus. But not Peter, no. Peter's Peter's denial is a a simple question of association. The word for deny is actually the opposite in the Greek for the word confess. Confess. Our call is to confess Christ and deny ourselves, and Peter is doing the opposite. He's denying Christ and seeking to preserve himself. So when was the last time you found yourself talking around a question? When was the last time you found yourself talking around a comment that would associate you with Jesus? Or with some unpopular biblical truth. Why do we do that? I'm sure we all could think of an example. Why do we do that? It's the fear of man, is it not? We fear people, what they think, what they'll do, instead of fearing Jesus. You see, if Satan can't pacify you or harness you, Satan wants to crush your strength. He wants to take the thing that would have given Peter the most confidence that he, before Jesus confessed him to be the Messiah, and and Jesus responded, blessed are you. God himself has given you that. This great moment in Peter's life, and Satan wants to take it, and he wants to stomp it out. This is how he's doing it. And that's what he wants to do to you as well. He wants to take those those great moments where God has really done something in your life, those great successes for God's kingdom, and he wants to make you feel like they're failures. He wants to crush you. We fear man because he might condemn us. Rather than fearing God, who cares for us? Who cares for us? This word, when Peter turns and looks at Jesus and Jesus looks at him, that word, there in the Greek, it means to, to look on someone with, with love and care and concern, to, to be like considering that person. And Jesus isn't, you know, you might read that and you might think Jesus is looking at him like, you jerk, I told you you were going to do this. But that's not how Jesus looks at him at all. What do we do? The application here is to confess Jesus and confess to Jesus. Our Savior looks on, no longer being mocked, but but glorified. Just as he said he would be glorified. Too often we're so concerned with the opinions of other people that we don't proclaim the good news to them. And like Peter, we need to look into the eyes of a suffering Christ, suffering on our behalf, and we need to weep. We need to weep, not from self-loathing, but from genuine contrition, genuine repentance, genuine confession. Listen, if we've been failing to confess Christ to others, we need to start by confessing to Christ about our own unbelief. If you can't confess your sins to Christ, if you can't confess to Christ your own need for Him, how will you ever confess Christ to someone else? How will you ever tell someone else their need for Christ? where it starts and praise God praise God that when Christ looks on us he looks with care and with concern and with love for his people with an eye to restore them so that just as he prayed for Peter when he turns again, when he repents he would strengthen his brothers. Listen, Romans 8.34, Hebrews 7.25, they tell us no one can condemn or separate us from God's love, that he is able to save us to the uttermost. Why? Because Jesus is right now at the right hand of God the Father interceding for his people. That's you, church. So maybe you come in this morning and you think about all the ways in which you have failed this week, all the ways that you've fallen victim to Christ, or to Satan's temptation, I mean, all the ways in which you haven't confessed Christ in different, in different places and you ought to have confessed Christ and you come in with this burden of the reality of your own denial of him in your, in your life and in your words and in your actions and in your thoughts and in your motivations and I want you to know that Christ is turning to you and he's looking you right in the eyes. And He's waiting for you to turn to Him. And you can do that. And He will forgive you. And He'll give you strength.